Oh, man. Thank you, worship team. And uh, oh, good morning, Hillcrest. It's good to be here on the beginning of this Advent season. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, man, a highlight, a highlight of our year. Just a reminder uh, to be grateful, the, the gratitude uh, for all the things that we've experienced. God is too good to us. And so um, this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful. Uh, my parents uh, are in town from Hawaii, and so it's nice to have them here to celebrate. Um, and it's an absolute, it's absolute chaos um, with the four kids running around. And, um, and so they just get a small window into the, to the daily life we live. Um, they're walking in now. It's good to see mom. Good to see. We never call people out around here, right? We never do that. We love protecting people's boundaries and providing a safe environment. It's good to see you, Mom. Two services. Oh, man. So, uh, and, and just thankful for uh, the Hillcrest family's continued generosity, just uh, the, to giving through Hillcrest to the mission of being people, helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time. And you could be praying on the 29th and 30th this week. Uh, we have that firm that we've been telling you about, Building God's Way, is coming out. And so uh, you could just be praying for how those, uh, how those conversations go with our, development, our campus development team, uh, staff, and elders. Uh, and, uh, and this Christmas season, uh, we, are, we are looking through Advent through this lens, just the change in perspective that changed everything. Uh, Advent, coming, arrival uh, of, of our long-awaited Savior, and then we now look ahead to His second coming. And so we want to look at the change in perspective that changes everything, that sometimes we get caught up in the holiday season. I just assume we're going to get bombarded by all the things that are going to be coming our way. And so uh, even like the stage declares, this movement from uh, all the holiday activity towards uh, just a reminder of the change in perspective that changed everything. And, and we're going to be looking at it through uh, a silly element, looking at a few holiday movies uh, as a way to see the Advent story and seeing it through those different movies and significant quotes, a significant quote that maybe captures uh, one of the biblical stories. And then uh, we will have a service on Christmas Day, 9 a.m., very low-key, but if you're looking for some place to go on Christmas Day to, to celebrate, celebrate with your families at home. But if you're looking for a place, we will be here at 9 a.m. on Christmas Day. And I want to highlight two of the things that we're going to be doing collectively as a family. Uh, the first is this 12 days of serving. In your bulletin, uh, you have this card, and if you, you're like, do I have my readers today? How, how do I read this thing? You can go on the website and see all of these detailed uh, but the intent is how do we as a church family embody what it means to be an everyday missionary to continue to see the spheres that we've been planted in. And so the first one at the very top, uh, right outside, you'll see some Christmas trees. Shop for Sharing Joy Christmas Tree. Is, uh, we asked our local school district, rather than what can you do for us, we just went to them and said, hey, is there something we could do for you this season? And so our care team reached out, coordinated with them, and there's just a few items that they uh, we're saying could be beneficial. Uh, and so we as a family are doing this 12 days of serving. And then second, our kids ministry uh, team put together uh, these devotionals. So we do a quarterly family night that was more outward facing where we invite people into uh, Hillcrest and provide a, a fun, uh, enjoyable family night. But this holiday season, we also want to equip parents. And so what does it look like to have an at-home family experience Rather than an elf on the shelf, uh, our kids team 
uh, said, what would it look like to hide a present around the house? And then, and then, uh, and then equip our families with a short devotional just to see parents as the primary conduit of God's grace to their kids, right? Equipping parents at home. And so maybe some of you older adults would love to send your, your spouse on a scavenger hunt for the present around the house. That is entirely up to you. Uh, but just a small way, in addition to a few other things, if you go to the website, you can see a few other things. And so as we jump into this first movement, um, I'm reminded of, of a scene from, this is one of my favorite silly songs around the holiday season. I think this is just, just absolutely silly. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with how the Grinch stole Christmas, uh, he, he's a little frustrated, and so he goes and he steals all the toys from Whoville, uh, and he, he concocts this plan that he, thinks gonna, that he thinks is going to destroy their Christmas, and, and then he listens and he waits for their response. And so here's, here's what he says. 3,000 feet up on the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip-top to dump it. Poo-hoo to the who's, he was grinchously humming. They're finding out now no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will be hanging open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused and the Grinch put his hand to his ear and he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry, very. He started down at Whoville. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. Uh, we're going to explore Matthew's recording of the wise men and their interaction with Herod. And there's this moment where Herod is attempting to stop Christmas from coming, and yet... The reality is the unstoppable movement of the gospel. Christmas came just the same. And so let's read, let's read Matthew's accounting of this early interaction of how the wise men journeyed to worship the king and how Christmas came just the same. Now after Jesus was born, this is in Matthew 1, 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men separately and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this morning, we're going to look at what Matthew records about these wise men and see these beautiful truths. This change in perspective demands we live with hope and leads to worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for us. When we recognize that Jesus has come, in this change of perspective elicits hope and worship for who he is and what he has done. So pray with me as we dig into the text this morning. Ah, God, you're way too good to us. We get to celebrate that reality at Thanksgiving, our hearts filled with gratitude for what you've done. And we, as we enter in this season of Advent, of, of looking towards your coming, uh, may we have that change in perspective that changed everything in the midst of whatever might be uh, clouding and bombarding our minds. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we're just going to walk through it, uh, walk through the text. And, and I want to start here, uh, just a broad understanding of what worship is, because we see that right from the get-go in the text. So what is that? God created us all to be worshipers. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. What, what is that? What, what does it mean to worship something? So test this, and I'm happy to have future conversations, but wrestle with this. What is worship? Here's, here's my attempt of, of dispelling some misconceptions. Using worship only in reference to God is not helpful. When we say we worship God, but all the other things are just stuff in life that we don't really have a category for, when we divide the sacred and the secular, it, it actually ends up doing a disservice. You know, I don't worship food. I just am overwhelmed and bombarded and consumed by it, right? I don't worship my work. I just spend every waking hour thinking and dreaming and being consumed with my work. You know, I'm not, I'm not worshiping these other things in life technology. I just spend eight hours a day. If you looked at my screen time, I, I don't worship it, though. I just spend a lot of time doing it. I would argue that's sometimes a disservice. When God says, worship no other gods before me, they had very specific ideas of what an idol was, I think we have those idols in our life just the same. Misconceptions of what worship is. Sometimes we see worship as exclusively the music we play on Sundays. That's my worship time, and what we're doing right now wouldn't be considered worship. I would say that's a misconception. Worship is what I do at church on Sundays, distant and separate from the rest of my life. I would say that's a misconception. Worship doesn't apply to any other area of my life, my work, my family, my hobbies. We actually see the totality. That would be a misconception. Worship is in all aspects of life. Worship is something we need to learn to do. I would say we come out of the womb. Just This is the way God has designed us, looking for something to fill this God-shaped hole. And worship is accomplished without the heart being engaged. I would say is a misconception that you could worship just in your head and have it never touch your heart. So, so if that's what worship is, isn't. What, what is? What is worship? 
I think it's ascribing worth or value to someone or something. That we ascribe worth or value. C.S. Lewis calls it, poets praise the countryside. They're ascribing worth to the countryside. Uh, Husbands or wives sometimes say, wow, you look beautiful today. What are you doing? You're ascribing worth, the appropriate degree for the corresponding someone or something. And, And it's just shipping your worth. That, that core word, worship, shipping worth, ascribing value to someone or something. And, and then the question becomes, well, how do we know when we're ascribing worth to someone or something? Anyone want to take a guess what the two ways we usually understand how we determine how we're determining something is worth a value? Where do you spend your time and where do you spend your money, right? If I look at your calendar or your bank account, we can tell fairly quickly what brings value and what you're ascribing value. And hear me say, sometimes in our consumeristic world around Christmas time, I wrestle with, oh, man, that stinking toy. Am I ascribing worth to that toy, or is it a reflection of my love for my kids that I'm worshiping? Or what's there? There's layers to it, right? So what are we ascribing worth? Look at our time. Look at our accounts. It says the wise men came to do what? Ascribe worth. For we saw his star when it rose. And if, Are you here two services? Gary, have you been sitting there both services? I just noticed you again. Man, you guys that do two services, it is a marathon. I can't imagine listening to me twice. Dear Jesus, help you guys. There you go, Fred. I'm on it. I'm on it. Just keep rolling. For he saw the star when it rose, and we've come to... Worship him, to ascribe worth or value. Now, what's the the most worthy, admirable being? (laughs) King Jesus, to ascribe worth to Jesus. So God created us all to be worshipers. Jesus is the king and should be worshipped. To ascribe worth or value to the being that deserves all glory, honor, and praise. And so what are they doing? We saw the star when it rose and we have come for he for, for, he, for, his, for where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've come to worship him. So what were they coming to do? What does it mean to come and worship King Jesus? I think it's this. We've just been, we've just been created to be worshipers, to appreciate, to value. It's just what we do in life to pursue our happiness. It's, it's just what we've been designed to do, trying to fill this God-shaped hole. And then Everyone is worshiping or pursuing someone or something. Just look at their bank account. Look at where they spend their time. You can see what are the things they value in life. And our difficulty is not that we don't worship. Our problem is that we are tempted to worship or value things or people more highly than is warranted. What is gluttony at its core? Worshiping food more than God intended food to bring satisfaction to your soul, right? That's gluttony. What is greed? Money isn't bad, it's a tool. Greed is when you ascribe more value than money can actually provide for your life, right? This this is all it is, and so it's understanding we worship those things in their appropriate order before God. Not illegitimate to pursue food. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, right? And, And then God's solution is to value things and people appropriately according to his value system. And we see that with the wise men. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And now we're going to turn more to the text. So there's a broad idea of worship. I want you guys to see the beauty of how Matthew has designed his text. 
Because does Matthew start with the shepherds? No. Does Matthew include anything about the shepherds? No. Where does he start? Wise men. How many were there? I'm just kidding. There's not three. We don't know there's three, right? Dispel that rumor. Jesus is to be worshiped by all the world. Matthew has this incredible picture he's trying to tell us about who this Jesus guy is. For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Where'd they come from? From the east. Does that mean they're Jews? What does that mean? Non-Jews, Gentiles from Babylon or Persia coming over. Maybe they heard from Daniel, some, some of those people from the Babylon captivity, and they're coming over. Someone open a Matthew 28, 16 to 20 and read that for us. Matthew 28, 16, 16 to 20. Come on, this struck me this week. Where does Matthew start his gospel? Non-Jews coming to worship the king. Where does Matthew end his gospel? Make disciples of whom? All nations. He's deploying people now. Come and see the king. And Matthew starts to say there's these non-Jews who are coming to worship the king. And Matthew ends and says, go and tell about this incredible king that has come. I mean, this heart to say Jesus is for the nations. He's not to be held on tightly, hunkered down just for this Jewish nation. We now get to participate as Gentiles in this movement, the unstoppable. Christmas came just the same, and it continues to move forward. Now the 11 went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus directed. They worshiped him. Some doubted, but Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is for the world. <laughs> Christmas has come just the same and has been coming for 2,000 years for the sake of the world. I love this. God has created us to be worshipers, and Jesus is the king and should be worshiped, and Jesus is to be worshiped by all the world. Matthew is directing us to see this is a global reality. And then he goes and he says, and God actually wielded all the details for this reality to take place. God uses every detail and everything to point to his son. Nothing is wasted. Here's how Matthew tells us about that. Behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Maybe you're familiar with the story. How'd they come? What brought them there? Camels. That's, that, that, they might have gotten on some camels. Thanks, Tom. What, what directed them there? The star. Yeah. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. <laughs> So, so here's what sometimes happens when we hear or read that. Maybe your mind goes to, well, what kind of star was it? Like, what was, the, what was the cosmological reality taking place in the first century that aligned the stars to direct the wise men? Was it Jupiter? Was it Saturn? Was it a comet? What was it? 
And sometimes when we start going down those trails, what are we missing? Come on, faith that God actually directed the universe in some way to draw these people to Bethlehem to worship the king. I mean, God is wielding every single detail. Sometimes the challenges we face in this life is God shouting at us in our pain to draw us to himself. And it came and rested, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. What does that joy feel like? Oh, man, they were happy that they had been brought by God to the king to now worship him. Here's, here's, here's where my heart goes. Do you think God's doing that today? Is he wielding the details of our lives to draw people to worship him? This is fascinating to me. There may be true followers of Jesus where we least expect them. That God is working in these places in pagan Babylon and Persia. God is drawing people to come and worship the king. He's wielding all the details and circumstances of life. God is guiding pagan Gentiles to Jesus to worship him. And Matthew begins his gospel there and then ends his gospel and deploys people to go and tell the story. How did God do that in Luke? Do you guys remember how he did it in Luke? He brought the whole Roman world together with a census. God wielded the Roman Empire to bring people together for a census. Do you think God's doing that in details today? Here would be my encouragement. God is at work in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And and here would be some questions that might help solicit God's activity. When we begin asking heart questions, history questions, hurts and hopes that actually tell of the gospel story. When someone says, what do you do for fun? How might they answer? Maybe you had these questions around Thanksgiving this holiday weekend. When you ask someone to tell their story and how God has been working in their life. (laughs) When you start asking to uncover the hurts and what they might be revealing about someone's story. Or about what they're dreaming of, what their hopes might be in this life. Because I'm convinced being made in the image of God, there's a common thread that will always tie us back to the gospel. That our origin story is we were created by God. There was a fall, Adam and Eve. There was a cross, a reconciliation, and there's a new creation taking place. And and if I told you guys about the interaction I had on a plane in New York recently, did I tell you guys about this? So so I was was flying back from New York uh, to Madison, and you guys know I pray up the seat next to me. Have we talked about this? So I pray for whoever God might bring to sit next to me. And, uh, and as we start talking, next thing I know, uh, they put in their earbuds. So I went, oh, okay, I guess, guess we're not talking then. Uh, but the flight attendant at that moment came and said, hey, there's a couple seats up front or, or near that we're trying to balance out the plane weight distribution, and would anybody be willing to move? I said, well, I guess I'm not talking to this person, so yeah, let's, let's see what's behind door number two. Let's go on up. And, uh, and so I, uh, I like to go up there, and it turns out it was Delta Plus. So you know, like when you're sitting in those seats, your like, knees are in your chest, right? It's like just crammed in there. I mean, then I go, and I get to sit in Delta Plus, and just God is the great provider, and now I have much more leg room. But I'm sitting next to this guy, and he's reading a book. He said he picked up this book. Uh, one of his neighbors put out a book stand, uh, free books, and he picked one up that sounded interesting. 
It was about uh, the assassination attempt on Hitler during World War II. And he said, yeah, there's some religious people that tried to get together and kill Hitler. And, uh, and so it, I'm like, yeah, I know this story, right? Uh, it's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor who shifted from being a pacifist, was so convicted by the evil that began an assassination attempt. And so he and I started talking, just started discussing about what he does for fun, which is read books, and this is the book that he happened to get from his neighbor, but it inevitably starts talking about what? Starts talking about the fall. <laughs> starts talking about morality. The conversation is ultimately tied in the world around us. God is weaving the details of life to draw people to himself. <laughs> He's been doing that, and it is. Christmas came just the same. And so through our conversation, I don't know if he goes back and has a further dialogue with his neighbor, but believing that God was working in his heart. I had a conversation with someone recently just about marriage, and, uh, and they were having some challenges. This was someone telling me about this circumstance. And they said they were having a conversation with someone, and they were explaining to them how they were having a challenge in their marriage and asked, how do you, how do you make marriage work? I mean, it's just so challenging. To which the person was able to respond, I think a healthy marriage is predicated on forgiveness. <laughs> and, and I'm able to forgive more often of my spouse because of what's been forgiven of me. What is that? That's tying the moments of life, back to the gospel story, the cross, restored for better, God's remedy. And I was like, yes, exactly, man, forgiveness. All the times I need to forgive my spouse for all the way she... You guys don't buy that one for a second, do you? Not for a second. So there's, there's the journey that Matthew is inviting us into. God is weaving all the details of life. That God created us to be worshipers, and Jesus is that ultimate pursuit of our worship what would ascribe the value and adoration above anything else in this life. And Jesus is to be worshiped by the whole world. Matthew calls us to that with the very first story he tells about the Magi. And then God uses every detail and everything to point to his son. Nothing is wasted in your life. Nothing is being wasted, both for your good to draw you more to himself and to draw others to be known, to know the Christ that we serve. And then when we live with this hope, we will experience opposition. Don't be surprised that many respond with hostility or indifference. Matthew includes a few characters in the interaction these wise men have, and it speaks, I think, to Christmas coming just the same, and yet not without opposition. Here's how Matthew records it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Herod, before it split up to the Tetrarchs, four, He's still Herod the Great. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod had a reputation just not being a very kind man. We're going to look at his life a few weeks later in Luke 2 again. But he was known for murdering those close to him that he thought were threatening his throne, his kingdom. He would go dressed as a commoner into the town, into Jerusalem, to hear if anyone was murmuring about him so that he could have them killed. So when it says, and all Jerusalem with him, when Herod was troubled, others were troubled with the possibility that they might be next. There's a hostility that starts to erupt in Herod's heart at the hearing of another king threatening 
who sits on the throne of his heart. And then, then what does he do? He gathers the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now we, if we were hearing this, who are the people that are anticipating the Messiah's arrival? The chief priests and scribes. Who are the people that would be anxiously waiting for this news and then frantically running to hear and find out where this guy was at? And yet the way Matthew records it, what's the response? It seems to be one of indifference. They told him, almost as a matter of fact, just the facts, here's what our text says, here's what the biblical text says. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. If they believe that reality, <laughs> what would be the response? They would want to run and worship and fall at his feet and welcome him. And instead, it's almost a head knowledge that they declare to Herod without any heart response. And then Herod responds. He summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him in a very manipulative way. Is he actually interested in worshiping him? No, there's a hostility. There's actually an antagonism that would want to destroy, <laughs> destroy this new king. Does that feel relevant to our world? That, I mean, do people respond with hostility and indifference towards Jesus? <laughs> Man, it seems like everywhere we go, there is an antagonistic response or a response of indifference towards the name of Jesus. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed another way feels like there's three responses that Matthew's telling us about that still seem true today, how people respond to Jesus. Three fundamental responses to how people act. What are they? We see in the wise men, what did they do? They welcomed and worshiped him. And then Herod, how did Herod respond? With hostility. And then how did the scribes and the chief priests respond? with indifference. I think one of the questions that starts to bubble up in my heart, if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, why do smart people disagree? If he really is so true, why do people disagree about who Jesus is? And we see it fundamentally in these three responses. Uh, oh, here's one slide that I wanted to include. In verse 16, if you look ahead, it's called the slaughter of the innocent, where Herod because he had been tricked, goes and kills all these babies in Bethlehem. Nowhere else is this recorded in antiquity. There's a ton written about Herod. Most pro prolific writings are written about this guy. Pretty, pretty narcissistic. But this particular story towards the end of his life isn't recorded. So some people would then discredit the biblical claims because this story isn't recorded anywhere else in antiquity, which is an argument from silence. They're not arguing against something Rather, because it's not listed anywhere else, they seek to try and discredit the gospel. I would say if you want to have a fuller conversation, that would not discredit the gospel for me. Instead, just an argument from silence, and we see other things that were recorded instead about Herod at the end of his life rather than this particular story. So, the wise men welcomed, King Herod was hostile, and these religious leaders were indifferent. Does that feel like that might be the way people respond today? 
that, that there are people that fundamentally become hostile and angry at the mention of his name. <laughs> that they can't even be around the idea of Jesus. And then others, maybe it becomes so familiar that there's this indifference, much like the scribes who knew the answer. They knew, they knew the story. <laughs> they knew the Old Testament saying of what was going to happen. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers. They knew the answer, and yet there was this indifference towards who Jesus was. They didn't seek him out. So, so how do we respond to hostility and indifference? How do we respond to the hostility and indifference towards Jesus around us? Because because there's a tendency to say, oh, I need to fight against this culture. They're wrong and they're missing it, and I need to show them how they're wrong. Matthew's telling us this response has been happening for 2,000 years, and yet Christmas came just the same. And so how would we as a people respond? Prayer is the work. So I would encourage you, I think there's people all around you that fall into one of those three categories. Either they're hostile, they're indifferent, or the possibility that they want to welcome and worship the king, though they're from pagan Babylon. <laughs> that God is actually working in the details of their life through a star to draw them to, them, to himself, and he's using us. Who are the people that fit in these four categories for you in your home, maybe in your family, your extended family? Maybe you saw them this Thanksgiving, and they're either hostile or indifferent, or maybe you're starting to see green shoots that they're longing to welcome and worship the king. In our work, in our neighborhood, in our hobbies. I go and play basketball every Tuesday. Why? I love basketball but I desperately hope that those people would respond to the call of the gospel. Underwater basket weavers, God's going to have to use someone else other than me. He might be using you. And so we listen. We listen for a heart response. We listen for a history in someone's story. We listen for the hurts that might be permeating in their life. And we look and listen for the hopes of what God might be doing those that are hostile, those that are indifferent. But God is actually weaving the details to call even those that we might not expect. So God created us to be worshipers. And Jesus is the king, the one who all value and worth ought to be ascribed. And he's worshiped by the whole world. Matthew tells us from beginning to end in his gospel, Jesus is for the whole world. And then when we live, and every detail points to him, and when we live with this hope, we will experience opposition. Don't be surprised that many respond with hostility or indifference. Because sometimes it feels we're surprised. <laughs> sometimes it feels like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> I think Matthew's trying to tell us, don't be surprised, and yet Christmas came just the same. And when we recognize the person of Jesus, we can't help but worship him, expressing the joy we have through sacrificial gifts. Here's how the wise men responded. Pick it up at verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they saw the detail that God had woven for them to understand who the king was, they responded with joy. What's that feel like? 
exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw Mary with his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There was a response of sacrificial gifts to the reality of what they'd just been confronted with. I think for us, in the same way, what what would sacrificial gifts look like? Sometimes it's not these types of gifts, but rather it's almost abstaining. What's fasting? You guys are familiar with spiritual disciplines? What's fasting? You're actually giving something up to declare that God is better than this thing you're giving up, right? What is solitude? The activity, you're giving up some activity to rest and be still and know that he is God. You're giving something up, those sacrificial gifts. I think those are some of the spiritual disciplines that we get to practice in joy And in addition to those, what would it look like for us to increase and enhance our worship of Jesus and increase our joy both individually and corporately? I think it always starts for me. How do you assess where your heart is? This holiday season, what what would it look like? Man, you guys know I love you, right? I cannot believe you guys give me this privilege week in and week out to declare these realities. It is an unreal gift and honor that, that, that causes me to try and appraise where my worship is. I never want to get up here and pretend that I'm declaring these and these aren't actually taking place in my life. So sometimes, for better or worse, you get to hear about the areas. I'm not expressing these as fully as I'd like. So honestly and accurately appraise our worship. Where's my time and my talent and my treasure being shipped to, and does it reflect what I ultimately believe in? I'm going to welcome the worship team up, and then Fred and Zach and Kimmy to join me for these last few. We understand that our worship of God is is any expression of our happiness rooted in an understanding of who God is and what he has done. That that worship at its fundamental level is this reality, any expression. So when I give gifts to my kids, I'm ultimately hoping they see God's generosity in and through that gift. When I discipline my kids, I don't say, God said don't do that. I said, Dad said don't do that. Ultimately hoping that they're going to see God's sovereignty in their life someday right? These are the actions. When I get angry and frustrated and respond in kind, I seek forgiveness. Why? I'm hopefully reflecting that we seek forgiveness from God ultimately, and so I'm seeking forgiveness in this particular situation. We understand that our worship in any expression of our happiness rooted in an understanding of who he is and what he has done. And then don't beat yourself up. Recognize that our worship of God goes through seasons, (laughs) that there is this ebb and flow of life that, that, that takes us through the highs and lows and the journeys and the pains. And we're trying to seek God in the midst of it. So don't beat yourself up this holiday season if your worship isn't as full as you'd like it to be. Instead, we return to the well and the fountain. And then this beautiful reality, know that God-pleasing worship is truth of God, like chiefs, scribes, and Pharisees, and heart posture, magi, they welcomed and worshiped. Head and heart. And so I don't know if there's a hostility right now in your heart that, that is preventing you maybe from fully worshiping God. Instead, we get to repent and seek him. I, I don't know if there's an indifference this holiday season where you hear this stuff and go, David, I've heard it. We get to sit in that for a minute. And then here's my hope. We continue to vote ourselves wholeheartedly for God's glory and our worship and our joy to knowing God and seeking transformation in the lives around us. That's why we're doing 12 days of serving, not to add something else to our life, but more fully reflect our heart posture of seeking transformation locally in the lives around us, and then also globally, and where we're sending Zach and Kimmy. And so, uh, Fred, I'll, I'll pass it to you.
Thanks, David. Yeah, and it's, it's such a great uh, uh, story from Matthew chapter 2 today that reminds me, Zach, of, of you and your family, you know, coming to Hillcrest so many years ago, uh, growing in your faith, and now as All Nations partners uh, being sent out, and, and specifically here today, being sent out even to a new place um, kind of far away. And uh, so we're excited to be a part of that. And why don't you just catch us up a little bit, remind us of who you are and uh, what, what the two of you have been up to these last uh, couple of years. Yeah, definitely. So my name is Zach. This is my wife, Kimmy. Um, I'm from Evansville, Wisconsin, so I've been going here for a while. And um, Kimmy's from Gurney, Illinois, so over by Six Flags, if you've ever been there. But um, yeah, we went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, both of us were part of the Navigators, um, which was a college ministry there. Um, and after we graduated, we were both invited to consider going on staff with the Navigators and continue investing in college students just as we had been invested in. And so uh, we were doing that for the last two years at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And um, now we are transitioning to a new opportunity over in New Zealand. So we'll be at the University of Canterbury uh, for two to three years uh, working with college students over there. So that's a, a pretty big change. What are, what are some of the things that, that you think, you know, we're talking about things like a star and a census that God used to kind of play out his plan. What are some things that you experienced that you can look back on now and say, ah, this was part of God kind of changing our hearts and calling us to a different place? Yeah, so I think the Lord um, has been putting the nations on our hearts um, just through a process over the past um, several years for me and Zach. For me, I think it started when I went on a mission trip in college to the Dominican Republic. That was my first time out of the country, my first time on a plane. And I just loved um, being in a new place, learning about a different culture and specifically sharing the gospel with people of a different culture. Um, and since then, I've wanted to go overseas again. And for Zach, um, I saw it um, through his relationships with students who were um, from other countries. So he lived with someone from China and just got to know him really well and just connected really well and was really curious about other people's cultures. And so I think the Lord really used those things to just put the nations on our hearts and give us a desire to be reaching people. And then specifically for New Zealand, um, I think being in the Dominican Republic, um, I learned a lot about the promises in the book of Isaiah that God has for the gospel to reach islands specifically. And that really intrigued me. And so when we found out that New Zealand was an opportunity, knowing that it's an island um, was immediately grabbed our attention. Um, and so, yeah, the Lord just really used that to pull us there. And then also the fact that it's a melting pot of a lot of different cultures cultures was something that intrigued us. Um, just by going there, we have the opportunity to reach people from Pacific Islands and Eastern Asia, um, because a lot of students come to go to school in New Zealand from those hard-to-reach places. Mm. And it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, as you leave here in a week or 10 days, that you're actually going to go to summer, right? <laughs> has nothing to do with that. Okay. Um, after being up in Duluth for a couple of years. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so real briefly, like when you, when you get there, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to doing and experiencing uh, in the context of your daily life and ministry and things like that? Yeah, so what we'll be doing there um, is pretty similar to what we've been doing in the U.S., just at a different university overseas, but we'll be um, meeting with students one-on-one -on -one or in small groups for discipleship, leading Bible studies with them. We'll be on campus trying to build relationships with new students, meet students who don't yet know Christ, mm -hmm. hosting large group gatherings and places for students to connect and things like that. Um, so yeah, very similar to what we've been doing in the U.S., um, and specifically, I don't think we said it, but in Christchurch, which is blocked off on that picture there. To, isn't the actual name of the city Christchurch? I know it's yeah, crazy. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you've you've explained really how God's kind of been been leading you up to this point, and 
And, and yet I, I want to understand a little bit more about your why behind doing this. I mean, we were talking earlier about you, you just celebrated Thanksgiving with each of your families and, and had that realization. This was the last like major holiday you're going to celebrate with them for a while. So you're, you're making a sacrifice. You're, you're leaving what you know and understand here and going somewhere brand new. You don't even have a place to live yet. So there's, there's some uncertainty. So, so why would you do that? What is that why in your heart? Yeah, definitely. I think the big thing is that we just want to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. Um, so over the last several years, like Kimmy was saying, like we've just had a desire to be reaching the nations and considering what it might look like for us to go. And so we want to be faithful to going um, since the Lord has put this desire on our heart. And it's cool that we read Matthew 28 today because that's a passage that we've spent a lot of time in and just thinking about and um, what it might look like for us to be making disciples of all nations. And um, I think the Lord's putting on our heart that like for us to make disciples of all nations might look like going to different nations. And um, so we're excited to just go. And um, we know it's going to be hard to continue to say goodbye to our families and friends. We've already said goodbye to a few people and it's hard and challenging, but we know it's worth it. And um, yeah, I think just amidst all of this, we just want to be taking a heart posture like Isaiah has um, in Isaiah 6, 8, where he says, here I am, send me. Um, so we are here. We're the Lord's. We just want to be obedient to him. An extension of, of, of your worship of him. You're, you're literally shipping your worship, your, your worth from here to there uh, and following after him. That is so cool. Well, one of the privileges that we do, uh, we can do here at Hillcrest is just like we see in the book of Acts when, when the churches would send people out like Paul and Barnabas they laid hands on them and commissioned them and sent them out. So uh, we want to do that with Zach and Kimmy. If you all would stand and join me in this as we uh, send them out. And even as I pray, if you don't mind, if, if you would, if you feel comfortable, just put your hand up as, as though we are all laying our hands on you guys and we commission you. So our Father, so thank you. Thank, thankful for what you have done in the lives of Zach and Kimmy to, um, to stir their hearts toward you, to stir their hearts toward one another in marriage, and now together to stir their hearts to reach the nations uh, all the way in New Zealand. Uh, so Father, I, I pray that you would continue to bless them as they make their final preparations. We pray even now that as you stirred the hearts of the wise men from the east, that you would be stirring the hearts of people who are yet to treasure you who will meet Zach and Kimmy when they get there and that you would use Zach and Kimmy to, to ask them about their lives and to, to help them process their spiritual need in Christ. And so, Father, we commission them. We send them out from this place where they have gathered and have grown up in, in, in growing in faith in you, and we now commission them out to New Zealand, and to the nations. May you use them mightily and bless them unbelievably in their time there. So, Father, uh, we bless, uh, ask your blessing on them as they go, and we send them in the strong name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.